Thank you, music team, for your wonderful ministry to us this morning. While we've spent time in hymns that are saturated in God's Word, let us now turn to God's Word as we contemplate the finished work of Jesus Christ. While the rest of Johannesburg today enjoys a day off from the daily grind of work, Christians around Johannesburg will be reflecting on the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made for our salvation. Many do not understand the significance and the importance of the cross in the story of redemption. Listen to Dan Barker, who calls himself one of America's leading atheists. He says, The idea that an omnipotent An omniscient deity would choose to sacrifice itself to itself in order to appease itself for the sins of humanity is absurd on its face. In contrast, one of the greatest thinkers God ever blessed the church with, the philosopher and theologian Anselm of Canterbury, whose little book, Why the God-Man, spelled out the reasons why the cross was absolutely necessary. The grounds and the necessity for Christ offering payment and satisfaction for our sins was to be found in the character of God himself. The reason the atonement was necessary, dear brothers and sisters, is because God is just and because God is righteous and because God is holy. In our age of love and tolerance, we have lost sight of the character of God. We have made God in in our own image. And in our minds, he is more like a celestial grandfather or a genie who is on duty 24 hours a day to give us all our needs and wants. In our own minds, we have made the, the love of God foremost and forgot about his justice his righteousness, his holiness. And we think that God will forgive all our sins without an atonement. We exchange the God of heaven and earth for an idol and fashion for ourselves a God who requires no satisfaction, who requires no payment for sin. But God's word tells us that he is holy, he is righteous and just, and that the righteousness and and justice of God must be satisfied. God cannot deny himself, and therefore he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. Jesus had to die on the cross because he was the only one who could pay pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, to make satisfaction, to repay the debt in full, and thereby to secure the debtor's release and deliverance from punishment. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26, Paul shows us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he adds that believers have been justified as a gift by grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Redemption means release affected by payment of ransom. But Paul is not finished. Why is Christ's death a ransom for many? It is because 
as we see in verse 25, God has foreordained his incarnate son to be a propitiation in his blood through faith. A propitiation is a sin offering that takes into account not only the guilt of sin, but also the wrath of God against us because of our sin. The fury of God's wrath can only be quenched when the demands of his justice are satisfied or paid in full. Paul declares that God has provided such a satisfaction by sending his own son to die on the cross. In this way, God can be just and at the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God has punished sin in his beloved son, Jesus Christ, and the bitter and shameful death on the cross as the payment for a ransom. The righteousness of Christ is accepted as a satisfaction for the sinner's debt, acquitting us of all guilt. As a propitiation, his righteousness covers our sin and delivers us from God's wrath and judgment. As we reflect on this passage, let us remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world may see the cross as a symbol of weakness and defeat, but as followers of Christ, we know that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have been redeemed and made whole. If you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. I will be reading from verse 16 to the end of the chapter. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. So the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to greet him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling. They were bowing down before him. And after they mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put on his own garments on him and led him out to crucify him. And, when they, and they pressed into service a passerby coming from the countryside, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And they divided his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide who should take what. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews... And they, and they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, mocking him to one another, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were saying, 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified him with him were also insulting him. And then the sixth hour came. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elohai, Elohai, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it. They began saying, look, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus, uttering a loud cry, breathed his last, and the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. And there were also some women looking from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was who, when he was in Galilee, were with him and serving him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when, the, when evening had come, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent council member, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he had died by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he had already died. And ascertaining from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And when Joseph had brought a linen cloth and took him down, he wrapped, the linen cloth, he wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in the tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he had been laid. This is the reading of God's holy, authoritative, and all-sufficient word. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Our gracious and loving Father, we come before you today with humble hearts, grateful for the opportunity to gather today as your people, to hear your word read and preached, and to worship you. As we turn our attention to the passage before us, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what you would have us learn today. As we read the account of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, and remind us of the great cost of, your, of, your, of our salvation, humble us as we contemplate your grace and mercy. Give us a new insight into the meaning and the significance of the Savior's sinless death. Help us to see anew the depth of your love for us and to respond with repentance, gratitude, and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit work within us as we listen to your word preached. May our hearts be transformed by the power of your truth. We pray that you would use this time to draw us closer to you and to strengthen our faith, that we might live lives that honor and glorify you. Humble me and make me a vessel fit for your use, O Yahweh. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. <clears throat> o Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord 
and our Savior. Amen. In Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 47, Mark describes three appalling scenes of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross, where he endured a humiliating and excruciating death by crucifixion, so that you will place your faith in him and be reconciled to God. The three scenes we will contemplate this morning are the mockery and humiliation of Jesus, verses 16 to 20. The mockery and humiliation of Jesus. Secondly, the crucifixion of Jesus, verses 21 to 32. The crucifixion of Jesus. And thirdly, the death and burial of Jesus, verses 33 to 47. The death and burial of Jesus. So let us step back together with Mark 2,000 years and witness the opening scene as we contemplate the crucifixion of Christ this morning, the mockery and humiliation of Jesus, so that you will place your faith in him and be reconciled to God. Despite the prophecy of Isaiah 53, foretelling the suffering servant and how he was to endure punishment and abuse for us, it is still difficult to read of the mistreatment of our Lord. He should have been honored and worshipped, but he was abused and mocked. However, Isaiah makes it clear that this suffering was not without purpose. Christ went through this abuse and torment to bear our griefs and our sorrows. So as we see in our text, the soldiers, after Pilate had passed sentence on Jesus are now entrusted with the responsibility of leading him away and bringing him to the place of crucifixion. But before they do that, they bring together the whole cohort for some entertainment. We see Jesus tormented by the, as we see Jesus tormented by the Roman soldiers, it's hard to not have the image of a cat playing with a mouse before it kills it. Dispassionate, unblinking torture. A Roman cohort was usually made up of 420 men, and all of them have been called out to share in this torment. Jesus has already been scourged. The Romans were particularly adept at administering this form of punishment to convicted criminals. Scourging would result in deep lacerations, torn flesh, exposed muscles and organs, and excessive bleeding that would leave the condemned half dead. Death was often the result of this cruel punishment, and though it was necessary to keep the condemned alive long enough to be brought to public execution on the cross. The centurion in charge would order the lictors, the soldiers carrying out the scourging, to halt the flogging when the criminal was near death. The idea was to leave prisoners severely weakened for crucifixion. In this opening scene, Jesus is the object of the soldiers' cruel mockery. The soldiers have clothed Jesus with a purple robe, which was the clothing color reserved for royalty, and they are mocking him here for claiming to be a king. They make a makeshift crown of thorns from a plant that had exceedingly sharp thorns and press it to his head. They salute him in a mocking way, just as they greeted the emperor with the words, Hail Caesar, 
the soldiers are saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they strike him on the head with a reed and they spit on him. They get down on their knees and feigned worship of him. A cruel parody of worship. The irony here before them is he is not just the king of the Jews. He is the king of the universe. One day, every knee will bow before him. Not mockingly, but in surrender and adoration or in utmost terror. He who could have called legions of angels when they arrested him at the garden. He who, when he stepped forward, they fell before his majesty and power. But here, he is outwardly observed as a pathetic victim. Jesus is bearing the cruelty of this mockery and punishment for you, for me. Mark also wants the readers to feel Jesus' response. His silence speaks for itself. With a peace that causes Pilate to marvel and a dignity that cannot be broken by the mockery and cruelty of the soldiers, Jesus is the suffering servant who sets the example and fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 42 verse 2. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. Finally, they have had enough of this cruel torment, and they lead him away to be crucified. Normally, the man condemned to be crucified was forced to carry the crossbeam that he would be crucified on to the site of the crucifixion. But Jesus is unable to do this. And so, we see in verse 21 that a man was randomly chosen for the task. The Roman soldiers compelled a passerby to carry Jesus' cross. Mark identifies this man as Simon of Cyrene. He is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark's mention of Alexander and Rufus suggests that the original readers knew them well, and it appears that they have become Christians. The Alexander mentioned in Acts chapter 19 and the Rufus in Romans chapter 16 may well be the same men mentioned here. But on this day, Simon was merely a passerby compelled to carry the cross. However, behind the Roman compelling is the sovereign call of God for this man to serve on this day in this way. As Jesus is led to his crucifixion, let us contemplate the second scene this morning, the crucifixion of Jesus, so that you will place your faith in him and be reconciled to God. Look with me at verse 22. <clears throat> then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. As a site of execution, the name is appropriate. This site of execution would have been outside the walls of Jerusalem, near a heavily traveled road. The Romans crucified criminals in public places where the gruesome spectacle functioned as a warning to those who were passing by. Look at verse 23. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now this was an act of mercy. 
It was a narcotic mixture that was intended to dull the senses and pain. However, Jesus refuses. Our Lord wanted to be in full possession of his faculties as he did the Father's will and accomplished the work of redemption. He would enter fully into his suffering on, behalf, on our behalf and take no shortcuts. He refused the cup of sympathy so that he might better drink the cup of iniquity for us. Jesus retained his clarity of mind to the end, ministering to the dying thief and pronouncing his powerful last words to those watching. Jesus had to walk as his people do through the valley of the shadow of death, tasting the fear of it, the encroachments of it, and the power of it, and yet yielding to it consciously and deliberately. So there would be no dulling of the pain for Jesus. No, he declines in order to taste death for us, for you, for me. Then, as we read in verse 24, and they crucified him. Mark's reference to the crucifixion is brief. It is brief and it is restrained. No further explanation is needed to be given to the first century mind. For most people in the first century had seen or heard of a public crucifixion. That was Rome's intention. It was a public deterrent to those who would defy Rome's law and rule. Crucifixion was well etched in their minds, and there needed, no, needed to be no further explanation given. No more defaming, painful death has ever been thought of by human hands than death by crucifixion. Cicero said, crucifixion is the grossest, cruelest, and most hideous manner of execution. But there's another reason why Mark is brief and constrained. He is brief and constrained because the cross involves more than physical suffering. The depth of the grief Jesus experienced on the cross cannot be perceived by simply describing the physical suffering that he endured on the cross. So Mark instead draws our attention to the mocking and to the ridicule, not to the physical suffering. As we saw in the previous scene, the mockery had already begun and now continues with new vehemency at the foot of the cross. Look at the second half of verse 24. And, referring to the Roman soldiers, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide who should take what? The soldiers at the execution were not only doing their duty for Rome, but they were fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22 verse 18 as they gambled for our Lord's garments. The fact that the innocent Son of God was placed between guilty criminals fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 12. During the next three hours, Mark describes the mockery and the insults the Son of God endured on behalf of sinners like you and me. Verse 25. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. 
this would make it 9 a.m. in the morning. Look at verse 29. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads. The popularity Jesus once experienced among the crowds is now forgotten. It has been less than a week since his triumphal entry where the people cheered his entry into Jerusalem and shouted, Hosanna, welcoming him like a king. It's all changed. They've all turned on him now. And as they pass by, they shake their heads and they hurl insults. Of course, the chief priests and the scribes won't miss the opportunity to mock him. The mockery and the insults would even include those who were crucified with him. Look at the end of verse 32. Those who were crucified him with him were also insulting him. Donald MacLeod notes, he was dying to save the world, but he died not to a chorus of gratitude, but to a chorus of mockery. All of humanity is represented here. And if you're perceptive, you will recognize your face in the crowd. And you'll hear the sound of your own voice. No one feels any compassion for him as he suffers. They delight in adding to his grief and suffering by ridiculing him as he suffers. Mark's narrative in this section is saturated with irony. For these enemies spoke more than they knew. Although the bits of mockery directed at him must have pained him more than the nails through his hands and feet. Jesus hears his future predicted and his purpose reinforced in the insults. So let's look at their mocking and what it reveals. First, they mock him as king of the Jews. He is crucified as a royal pretender by the Romans. He is crucified as a messianic pretender by the Jews. He is guilty of sedition and blasphemy. And though innocent, he hangs there. He hangs there as a criminal between two insurrectionists on a cross that was intended for Barabbas. Above him hangs the inscription of the charge against him. Verse 26, the king of the Jews. On the cross, he appears anything but a king. He appears powerless. He appears helpless. He appears weak. He appears humiliated. He appears disgraced. And he appears cursed by God himself. Onlookers would observe the scene and think, is this the king of the Jews? However, what the Romans mock him for, Mark and the writers of scriptures perceive differently. For this is the king, not just of the Jews. This is the king of the universe. And this cross, this cross that he is on, this is his coronation. It's his coronation, for through his suffering he will reign. Who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by, by, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The very event they thought would curse him, exalted and crowned him Lord of all. Secondly, they mocked him as the one who would destroy and rebuild the temple. Look at verse 29. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. This was a false charge that had been brought against him. For Jesus never predicted that he would destroy the temple. What he said was, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They misunderstood him to mean the magnificent temple of Jerusalem. The meeting place between God and sinners where sin was atoned for through sacrifice and the center of Jewish religion. But what he was speaking about was the temple of his body. So the onlookers present that day just glanced at the temple that filled the skyline while he hung helplessly suspended on the cross at Golgotha. To them, this man is a fraud. There stands the temple, and there you hang in humiliation. And so they mocked him. Yet, those whose eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit will realize that the Lord hanging there is the one who fulfills all the temple prefigures. And, th and through, the cross, through the cross, he will bring an end to the temple. For following his death, there will be no more need for the temple. For in and through his atoning sacrifice, God and sinner are reconciled. So by dying on the cross, he brings to an end the need for the temple and its sacrificial system. Through him, through them, Jesus also hears his words come back to him in the promise of his father. The temple of his body will be destroyed, but the power of God, but by the power of God, in three days it will be raised to newness of life. What starts out as a ridicule turns to reinforcement. And finally, they mock him as God's appointed saviour in verses 30 to 32. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. That in the same way, mocking him to one another, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. As we saw earlier, even those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. These, these words are being spoken by those who despise him. Yet these words reveal profound truth. The chief priests view Jesus as a fraud and a failure. He has been unable to save himself from Roman crucifixion. He is a Messiah pretender, for the Messiah conquers and the Messiah reigns. The Messiah doesn't die by crucifixion at the hands of these Gentiles. Jesus certainly must have been humanly tempted to pray that God would make the moment of his coming with power and glory an immediate event. Instead, 
he remembers the cup from which he must drink in order to be the ransom for the sins of many. If he saves himself, others he cannot save. In their blindness, the chief priests and the scribes become prophets of redemption. In their mockery, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Jesus hears his purpose come back to him. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. With equal strength, he hears God speak through the co-opted prophets of the Sanhedrin. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. To remain on the cross and to bear the sins of many is to fulfill God's promise and purpose for his life. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Leon Morris notes, they said they would have believed he was the son of God if he came down from the cross. We believe he is the son of God because he stayed up. Aren't you glad that he stayed there? Do you realize what kept him there? It wasn't the nails that kept him there. What kept him there is what put him there. What put him there was the resolve to please and glorify the Father. What put him there is his love for sinners like you and me. So, if you are a Christian, in order to save you, in this moment, he did not save himself. He stayed there and endured unfathomable grief. He gave his life for you because he loves you. So all the grief that he experienced and endured, it is a wonderful display of his love. Ironically, his enemies in the attempts to add to his grief by mocking him were actually right about him. And their mocking of him actually reveals his glory. As we contemplate our Savior crucified at the, at the foot of the cross, let us move to our final scene, the death and burial of Jesus, so that you will place your faith in him and be reconciled to God. Jesus is now hung on the cross for three painful hours. Mark informs us that at noon, a most unusual and unexpected event takes place. We look at verse 33. Darkness. A, a miraculous darkness comes over the land. 33 years earlier, there had been brightness and music at midnight when Jesus was born. Now, there's darkness and silence at noon as he dies. This darkness was indeed a miracle and not some supernatural phenomenon. It would not be possible to have an eclipse during full moon at Passover. By means of this darkness, God was saying something to the people. At Exodus, a plague of darkness spread over the land before the first Passover lamb was slain. Now, before the death of the ultimate Passover lamb, there was darkness again. God's judgment was being poured out in a midday night. The darkness at Golgotha was an announcement that God's firstborn and beloved son, the Lamb of God, was giving his life 
for the sins of the world. When the darkness came, there was silence on his cross. For it was then that he was made sin for us. For Jesus, the three hours of darkness mean hell on earth. The judgment, the darkness symbolized the judgment Jesus experienced when his father forsook him. What he had already foreseen at Gethsemane becomes reality. The awful weight that he will be made sin and separated from his father almost took his life at Gethsemane. Now, on Golgotha, he experiences what he had foreseen. For three hours, sin in its universal and unadulterated form penetrates his soul until finally he becomes sin itself, as foretold in Isaiah 53. At that moment, God's nature demands justice. He has to break the lines of unfettered communion, leaving Jesus all alone as the man of sinners under the judgment of God. No other suffering can break Jesus' silence, but to be separated from his Father provokes the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is directly quoting Psalm 22 verse 1 here. The physical agony was nothing in comparison to the sin which caused him such agony. My sin, your sin. And was so often the, the case. The people did not understand his words. They thought he was calling for Elijah the prophet. There was not only darkness over the land, but there was darkness in the minds and the hearts of the people. Jesus has gone beyond the range of our knowledge and experience. Rationally, it is impossible for us to reconcile the questions. Did God forsake Jesus or did Jesus' faith fail? Experientially, we who are sinners cannot understand what it means for Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin on our behalf. Nor can we who have often broken communion with God feel the trauma of separation that is not of Jesus' Jesus's choosing. Only our Christology can rescue us. Jesus is at once fully God and fully man, free from sin and sin itself, one with the Father and all alone. Unless Jesus was made sin and separated from communion with his Father, there, would, there was no hope for our justification. The Father must forsake him because his holiness demands it. In his transcendent holiness, he is unable to look upon sin. He must punish sin. And as our substitute, Jesus endured his wrath. This God forsakenness and endured it. Drinking the cup of iniquity. All of its final dregs. Something in the, cry, in the nature of Jesus' cry tells the waiting crowd that the end is near. Mistaking the painful sound of Elohai, Elohai, for the name of Elijah, some of the bystanders think that they can hear him calling for help. Someone runs to fill a sponge with sour wine, put it on the end of a reed, and stretches it up to offer as a drink to Jesus. Cruel curiosity, not compassion, motivates the move. Liquid in Jesus' dehydrated body will likely keep him alive longer. 
giving them the chance to see if Elijah will come and take him down. Then, in verse 37, we read, And Jesus, uttering a loud cry, breathed his last. The Gospels of John and Luke provide more insights into Jesus' last words. He has two more wonderful statements. It is finished, in John 19, verse 30, And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, in Luke 23, verse 46. Please understand this, brothers and sisters. Jesus was not murdered. He willingly laid down his life for us. He was not a martyr. He was a willing sacrifice for the sins of the world. He is a victor in his death. And when he said it is finished, the Greek word used to describe that word finished is tetelesta. This is a word used in the marketplace to conclude a transaction. It is a financial word signifying that there is now made payment in full for all debts that have been incurred. Every sin that you and I have ever committed or will ever commit for the rest of our lives has now been fully atoned for and paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is now therefore no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. A remarkable event occurs at his death. The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, as seen in verse 38. The veil had separated man from God, but now, through his death, Jesus has opened the whole world a new and living way. Through his sacrifice, Jesus had purchased not only freedom from the law, but also freedom from the entire sacrificial system. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, no sacrifice was ever able to permanently take away sins. There was no power in the blood of lambs and bulls. But when Jesus died, he cried out, It is finished! Because the price for our redemption had been paid in full. Throughout the Old Testament, they made sacrifice again and again. There was no seat in the Holy of Holies or in the temple. There is no place for the priest to sit down because his work is never finished. But Jesus, by his one perfect death upon the cross, has now ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is seated at the, right, at the majesty upon high. He will never again suffer and die on our behalf because the perfect perfection and the finality of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' last breath also brings the confession from the centurion's lips. In verse, 20, in verse 39, Truly, this man was the Son of God. If anyone can make a judgment about the character of Jesus, the Roman centurion can. Most likely, he has, he has been in charge of the prisoner since the chief priests turned him over to the Roman authorities. He has seen Jesus falsely accused by the chief priests, unfairly condemned by the frenzied mob, Brutally scourged, short of death, grotesquely mocked by his own troops, utterly humiliated on the forced march to Golgotha, nailed to the cross, mocked by passers-by, and crucified as a common criminal. Nothing is new in the crucifixion except the man on the cross. By his demeanor in death, Jesus witnesses to his righteousness, even to a hardened officer of the Roman guard who confesses 
that his victim is the Son of God. Briefly, let's look at verses 40 to 47, and we see the burial of Jesus. It was important that the place of execution be quickly cleared, because the Jewish Sabbath was about to begin. And the Sabbath was a high day because of the Passover. Had Joseph not acted boldly, the body of Jesus might have been disposed of like rubbish. And so we see Jesus buried in fulfillment of prophecy, as we, in the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 9. In Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 47, Mark describes three appalling scenes of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross, where he endured an humiliating and excruciating death by crucifixion so that you will place your faith in him and be reconciled to God. Those scenes we contemplated were the mockery and humiliation of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the death and burial of Jesus. The crucifixion was the ultimate display of God's love for humanity. Through his death and resurrection, we are offered the gift of salvation and the hope of eternal life. God sent his only son to die for us, ruined sinners. As we contemplate such unconditional love, we are challenged to examine our own response to Jesus. Christ bore our sins and endured God's judgment to redeem us for himself. The cross reveals God's righteousness and love for sinful mankind. Rather than damning all sinners to hell forever for their sins, God sent his son to die for them as an atonement. We deserve to be cast into outer darkness, but the, but the darkness of divine wrath came upon Jesus. God's justice for his people was satisfied in Christ. And because Christ was crucified, believers are released from condemnation and punishment. Christ suffered and died so that we might have eternal life through faith in him. He went through the agony of the cross so that we may be reconciled to God. And so that those who believe are able to approach him with confidence and assurance, knowing that our sins have been forgiven. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, as we come to the end of this time of reflection on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us to take these words to heart and to allow them to shape our lives. We pray that we would never forget the sacrifice that was made for us on the cross and that we would always be mindful of the love that was poured out for us. As we go from this place, we ask that you would give us strength to be your hands and feet in this world, to show love and kindness to those around us and to share the good news of your salvation with those who do not yet know you. We pray that the story of the cross would never grow old to us, but that we would always be filled with wonder and awe at the depth of your love for us. Help us to live in such a way that our lives reflect the glory of your name. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a propitiation for us. Amen.